But this evening we're, we're looking at that passage from uh, 1 Thessalonians that, uh, that I read just now. I don't know if you've ever put a, a blue slip question in the box for Chris to answer. But um, a few nods there, a few nods. Others not, not admitting it. But, uh, but as we come to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 this evening, it's as though the, the Thessalonian believers had handed Paul a blue slip question. And these verses really are Paul's answer to that question. Now, to understand what, what gave rise to, to their question, we need to remember that, you know, as we've seen previously in, in, one, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was only able to be with them for a short period of time uh, because he'd, he'd been forced to flee for his life. Uh, and yet, despite the fact that he was only with them for such a short time, uh, the gospel had come to them with, with great power. Uh, and they'd, they'd received the word of God, uh, uh, received the word of God with great, great joy, uh, and doing that had a, a profound effect upon them. You know, we're told that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They became imitators of Christ. Uh, that they became examples uh, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That the word of the Lord sounded forth from them. Uh, they were characterised by, by love for one another. Um, Paul said to them in, in chapter 2 verse 6, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. So a really amazing, radical change had taken place in them. Uh, and it was continuing. Uh, and Paul was... Uh, deeply thankful to God for that uh, and was very encouraged by it. Uh, but even so, given that Paul had only been able to spend so little time with them, it would hardly be surprising if there were some things about their new faith that they did not yet know or they didn't fully grasp or, or they simply misunderstood. I think Paul suggested as much in chapter 3, 9 to 10, when he said, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So a dramatic change had taken place, but there were some things that they still needed to be straightened out on, but that things that they needed to, to, to understand more more clearly. Now it had been reported to Paul um, that in serving the living and true God, uh, in, in verse 110, we see that they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And it seems that therefore that they were very clear about the fact that the risen Lord Jesus Christ would come again. And they were very clear that their hope for the future was closely related to his return. But it also seems that they'd somehow got it into their heads that his return was imminent. Now, I'm sure Paul hadn't actually said that to them. 
I'm sure that what Paul had said to them would have been in keeping with with Jesus' teaching about his return. That that, that is, um, he'd have stressed that the time of Jesus' return is unknown, uh, but that it could be at any time. Uh, And we should therefore always be ready for his return. We should be looking for his return. But you can see, you can see how in, if you like, the euphoria of their, their wonderful newfound faith, um, it's easy to see how they might take that to mean that he would be returning very soon, any time now. Now, for us today, it's very easy for us to, to avoid that mistake, isn't it? You know, we don't fall into that mistake uh, because over 2,000 years have passed. Uh, but but there is nonetheless a very clear biblical emphasis that we should be constantly looking for the Lord's appearing. Our danger is perhaps that, that we lack that sense of eager expectation because we're used to the idea that actually, well, it's taking quite a long time. It, it, it wasn't immediate. We're still waiting. So we tend to perhaps fall into the, the opposite extreme rather than thinking the Lord's return is, is imminent, uh, we go to the opposite extreme and we say, well, it won't be any time soon. And we need to always remember that uh, he could come at any time and we're to be looking uh, and longing for his return. Now, what prompted the Thessalonians' blue slip question was the fact that some of their brothers and sisters had died. And Jesus still hadn't returned. Now, given their proper conviction that their their hope for the future was dependent on the return of Christ, they were concerned about their dead brothers and sisters. Uh, the eventual it was an eventuality that they hadn't foreseen. That they were so sure that Christ was coming straight away, um, they hadn't thought about what happens. To, to people who have died before he comes. Uh, would they miss out on the blessings that are associated with Christ's return? Could it even be that, that they were lost? That this was a matter of great concern to them? Was the gospel that, they, uh, 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 the, 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 that they'd come to believe not as good as they thought? Was it not all it was cracked up to be? Were there loopholes that they weren't aware of? What would happen to them if they died before Christ's return? So Paul addresses that question in verses 13 to 18. And in doing so, besides putting the Thessalonians' mind at rest, uh, he provides us with a, a lot of useful information about Christ's return. Uh, In the course of his answer, uh, we see his desire, Uh, we see his doctrine, we see his declaration, his description and his deduction. I notice that uh, Chris has left spaces on the on the heading so you can fill them all in in one go there. (laughs) I've told told you all of them. But firstly, let's uh, look at Paul's desire. Uh, We see that in, in verse 13. Uh, where Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, 
about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not, uh, who have no hope. The words we do not want show that Paul is revealing his desire here. He expresses it negatively by saying he doesn't want the Thessalonian believers to be uninformed. Or more literally, he doesn't want them to be ignorant. So his desire for them is that they will be informed. He wants them to know. He doesn't want them to be in the dark. He wants them to know. And it's worth noticing, isn't it, that uh, you're unlike in so many religions, Christianity isn't a matter of blind faith. It's not uh, unthinking acceptance of what experts tell you or special people tell you. Neither is it superstition or mumbo-jumbo. No, we're not to be ignorant or uninformed. Rather, the emphasis is on knowing for yourself, being convinced in your own mind. You remember how the, the Bereans were commended for examining the scriptures to see if what they'd been told was true. And our faith is based fairly and squarely on knowing the truth. Now in this context, what truth does Paul want them to know about? What did he want them to know? Well, he said he didn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And then he goes on in verses 14 and 15 to mention those who have fallen asleep. But what does he mean by that? Well, in verse 16, he describes them as the dead in Christ. So he wants them to know the truth about believers in Christ who have died. If someone was to ask you to give a, a definition of death, I wonder what you'd say. Um, one dictionary definition I, I read said, the cause or occasion of loss of life. That seems to be stating the obvious, doesn't it? It's not really uh, defining anything. It's not a satisfactory definition. Uh, the legal definition is an individual is dead if the individual has sustained either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. Once again, it doesn't define what death is, does it? I mean, it tells you how to recognise if someone's dead, uh, but it doesn't define death. Um, from a biblical perspective, I think we can consider human death to be the separation of body and soul. And, and recognising that uh, will be helpful in, in understanding what Paul describes in this passage. Uh, in many people's lives, you know, besides being difficult to define, uh, death is very much the elephant in the room, isn't it? Uh, many people are content uh, to remain in denial. People know that death is inevitable, but they prefer not to think about it. That they're more comfortable to remain uninformed. Because the reality of death for unbelievers is really too awful to contemplate. It, it threatens all of our cosy illusions. It, it mocks all, all of the high opinions we have of ourselves. It, 
it undermines all of all, all, all that we, we think we are and all, all, all the uh, things that we're happy about. It just pulls the rug out from under everything, doesn't it? Now, the fact is that although death is inevitable, um, it's also unnatural. It, it's, it's alien. It's, it's utterly grotesque because it's the wages of sin. And yet Paul wants the Thessalonians to be clued up on death. He doesn't want them to, uh, to be uninformed. That's not because he had a, a sadistic desire to make them face harsh realities. It's because he wanted them to be aware that death is a very different proposition for the believer in Christ than it is for an unbeliever. Uh, he described the dead in Christ as being those who are asleep. Uh, and isn't that a, a lovely picture? You know, when you think of the horrors of death, the grim reality of death, and yet Paul can speak of believers in Christ who are dead being those who are asleep. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's all the more lovely when you, you contrast it with the grim reality of death without Christ. You know, what, what sort of ideas come to your mind when you think of sleep? Well, you perhaps think of, of rest. Well, the, the dead in Christ have rest from their labours, rest from the trials and hardships of this life. You perhaps think of peace. Well, the, the dead in Christ have nothing to fear. They, they no longer have anything to trouble them. They're at peace. Or perhaps you think in terms of waking up again refreshed. Well, the dead in Christ know that death is not the end. Uh, it's not permanent, that they will wake again. And it won't just be waking again to the same old, same old, that they'll wake up again to a life that's so much better uh, than, than, so much better than, than anything about the life they, they knew before. Why does Paul not want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep? Well, he says it's that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. Now, now no, please note here, he's not suggesting that Christians aren't to grieve or mourn when our brothers in Christ die. You know, there, there, there should be genuine sadness when they're taken from us. You know, because we love them, because we'll miss them. It's right to grieve, it's right to mourn. Paul's point is, that we're not to grieve in the same desperate, desolate, hopeless way that unbelievers do. They have no real hope. We do. And that's a world of difference, isn't it? We know that our dead brothers and sisters in Christ are now at rest. They're now at peace. And they will one day rise again. So our, our genuine grief... It is tempered by the, the genuine comfort that arises from a, a sure hope. Paul's desire was that these Thessalonian believers should know that. He wanted them to be assured that their brothers and sisters who had died ha had peace, had rest, and would one day rise again. Well, next notice uh, 
that, that the desire that they should not be uninformed so as not to grieve as those who have no hope is realised on the basis of Paul's doctrine. In verse 14 we read, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So the, word begi- uh, the, the verse begins with for. So Paul is going on to tell us what gives rise to that hope that means that we don't grieve as others who have no hope. What's the basis of that comfort? What's the basis of that confidence? And Paul says it's what we believe. It's doctrine. It's teaching. Now, obviously, as Christians, we we believe lots of things, don't we? Uh, The belief that Paul particularly singles out here is that Jesus died and rose again. And that's a, a statement that Obviously, it can properly be expanded and elaborated. You, you can flesh that out. But, but that really is the fundamental truth that lies at the very heart of the gospel message, doesn't it? Jesus died and rose again. And he goes on to say, uh, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now it's perhaps not immediately clear what the connection is between Christ having died and risen and his bringing with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, If we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 20, I think that perhaps might help us to grasp the point. Uh, Paul said there, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So we say, if Christ isn't risen, then those who have died, even though they believe in Christ, they've perished. They're not only dead, they're dead dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, so the point is, because Christ is risen, those who are in him, even though they've died, they've not perished. The, the, their bodies are dead and buried in the grave. Their body and soul has been separated, but they've not perished. Their, their souls are still alive. So because Christ is risen... That the souls of, of those who have died in him are alive, so when he returns, he can bring them with him. That, they're, they're, that they've not perished, their souls are alive, so when he returns, he will bring the souls of those who have fallen asleep with him. Now the ESV is a bit cumbersome in saying, even so, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, I think the NIV captures the sense better there by by saying God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now this tells us that believers who have died, oh yes they're at peace, yes they're at rest, yes they're going to rise again, but this tells us that they've they've gone to be with Jesus. They are with him, They're, they're, they're where he is, that they're with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what a comfort that should have been to the Thessalonian believers. That their brothers and sisters who had died, they were not only at rest, 
They were not only in peace, but they were now with the Lord. And what's more, that they, they won't miss out on the blessings associated with Christ's return, because when Jesus returns, he'll bring them with him. They're part of it. They're involved. They're not going to miss out on anything. Well, that being the case, the next thing we see is Paul's declaration. In verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So here Paul is declaring that not only will those who have died in Christ not miss out, but they're not bear any any disadvantage of of any sort. He's saying, uh, he's speaking of those who are alive at Christ's return, and he says, uh, in the same, uh, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Now you could perhaps get the impression from that that Paul is almost imagining that that he is going to be alive at the return of Christ. Um, but I don't think that that is what he's suggesting, because uh, in the next chapter, he says in verses 9 and 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So Paul was open to the possibility of being either dead or alive. When when Christ returns, his point here is that it doesn't really matter either way. Whether you're dead or alive when Christ returns doesn't make any difference. Neither group has any uh, any advantage. Christ, uh, you know, he's saying that those who are alive at the return of Christ will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, the, the Greek phrase here that's been translated as not is, uh, is very emphatic. Um, it should really uh, perhaps be translated as something like certainly not or in no way. You know, it's utterly out of the question. And, and the word that's translated as precede means to come before or, or have priority. So the, the point is, it's out of the question that those who are alive when Christ returns uh, will have any advantage at all over those who have died and returned with him. Paul made the same point in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53, where he said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. You see, when Jesus returns, it's true that those who have died will experience something different from those who are still alive. Uh, those who are still alive at his coming. But the results will be exactly the same for both groups. He says, we shall all be changed. Those who have died, those who 
are, are still remaining alive, all will be changed. For those who return with Christ, their bodies will be raised and reunited with their souls. For those who remain, their bodies and souls will be transformed. And the net result will, for, for both will be that they receive imperishable, immortal bodies. Perfect souls will be housed in glorified bodies. So the Thessalonian believers need have no fears about what lay in store for their brothers and sisters who have died, or for themselves, should they die before Christ's return. Now, in order to make it absolutely crystal clear that the dead in Christ will be at no disadvantage, Paul goes on to describe what will happen when Christ returns. So let us uh, consider Paul's description. We, we see the outline that he describes there in verses 16 to 17, uh, where he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Again, he begins with the word for. So this outline that he provides is the basis for what he said about those who are in, uh, those who are alive in uh, Christ's return, not having any advantage over those who have fallen asleep in him. Time really forbids us from looking at this outline in any great detail. So we'll, we'll just make some brief observations about six things that, that Paul says are going to happen. And they all begin with the letter R. So that should act as a, a useful aid memoir. Uh, so firstly, we, we see the return. In verse 16, he begins by saying, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpets of God. Just two things to point out from that, and they are that his return will be in person, and his return will be in public. Um, his return being in, in person. Uh, you notice how emphatic the statement is there. Now he doesn't just say the Lord will descend from heaven, but the Lord himself. It's very emphatic that this really is the Lord. You remember when the apostles watched Jesus ascend into heaven. Uh, read about it in, in Acts chapter 1. And the angel said in verse 11 there, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's the same Jesus. It will be the very same Jesus who died and rose and ascended who returns. Uh, and then it, he will return in public. Um, there will be nothing secret or hidden about his return. Uh, we're told that it will be with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, the commentators speculate about what the cry of command is and who the archangel is and what the trumpet of God refers to. 
um, and we won't get bogged down in any of that, suffice it to say that this suggests that his return will be with great pomp, great ceremony. Uh, it's safe to say that his return will be unmissable. Uh, it will be very public, very visible. It will be a, a great spectacle that no one can miss. So that's his return. Secondly, we see the resurrection. Because Paul continues in, in verse 16 by saying, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now we've already seen that Jesus will, will bring the souls of those who are asleep in him. But now we see that when he does so, their bodies will be resurrected. So as the souls of the dead in Christ are coming down, their bodies are rising. And we have this lovely prospect of bodies and souls that were separated by death being gloriously brought back together. That they're being gloriously reunited. This is death being reversed. This is death being undone. Um, John o Chris had a few John Owen quotes this morning. Well, one of John Owen's famous titles is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And of course, the death of death was secured when Christ died. But this is the practical outworking of it. This is it actually being done, actually happening. This is death being reversed, being, being undone. Now you could get the impression, uh, when he says the dead in Christ will rise first, you could get the impression that he's saying the dead in Christ will rise before those who are, have not died in Christ. You could get the impression that he's saying the death in Christ, uh, the, the, the dead in Christ will rise before those who have died without faith in Christ. But throughout this whole passage, Paul has been considering believers. He's not addressing what happens to unbelievers uh, at all. Uh, and as we read on, uh, we find that the context uh, really makes it quite clear that that's not what he means at all. Uh, you see, having said, the dead in Christ will rise first, he then goes on to say, then we who are alive who are left. So, so you see the order there. It's first, then. So the sense is that, that first the dead in Christ will rise and then something will happen to those who are alive. What will happen to them? Well, that's the third thing we see here. Uh, we see the rapture because Paul continues in verse 17 by saying those who are left will be caught up. Now, the word rapture might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, because dispensational premillennials have this teaching of a, of a secret rapture and I'm sure we've all heard those sort of sensational scenarios that are posited on the basis of such teaching. You know the sort of thing that the, the Christian airline pilots who suddenly whisk away from the cockpit and leaves the plane and the unbelieving passengers to plunge to their deaths. Uh, well, put that out of your mind. When I use the word rapture, uh, I'm not using it in, in that sort of way at all. But um, rapture is actually uh, quite an appropriate word. Uh, it's an appropriate word to use here. It comes from rapere, which is a, a Latin word, which is the equivalent 
of the Greek word harpazo, and that's the word that Paul actually uses here. Um, the ESV translates it as caught up, but it really means being powerfully and, and suddenly seized or, or grabbed or, or snatched. So the idea here is that once the dead in Christ have been raised from the dead, those who are still alive will be powerfully laid hold of. That they'll be grabbed. That's that's the idea that's in mind here. Uh, and, and to what end? Well, that's the fourth thing, because we see the reunion. Uh, Paul continues in verse 17 by saying, together with them in the clouds. So there will be a, a reunion of those who uh, are still alive, who have been powerfully transformed and, and grabbed hold of, they'll be reunited with those who have died and been raised, uh, been raised from the dead. Uh, back in verse 15, Paul said, We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Well, now he's saying that those who are alive, who are left, same phrase, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And the point is, neither takes precedence, because both are are brought together. Uh, Those who are dead in Christ, or that they've come down from heaven with Christ. Those who are alive uh, were still on the earth. They they were apart, they were separated. And now they're brought together. That they're reunited. So, for what? To what purpose? Well, that's the fifth thing we see. Uh, We see the rendezvous. Because Paul continues in verse 17 by saying, to meet the Lord in the air. So the reunited believers, those who were dead in Christ, those who were alive, all uh, reunited, all together, they will then uh, meet the Lord in the air. They'll meet the returning Lord Jesus Christ. They'll rendezvous with him. But this is more than just a, a meeting. It's not, you know, a, a quick, how do you do? Quick cup of coffee and we're on our way doing whatever. No, uh, and neither is in the air the, the, the final destination. You see, the, the Greek word that's been translated as, as meat here is apentesis. And that's the word that was used for the, the official welcome that was afforded to a, a, a visiting dignitary. When a visiting dignitary uh, came to a city, uh, the leading citizens would go out from the city to meet him and and to welcome him and to escort him into their city. So the picture that we have here is more than just a a casual meeting with with Jesus. Uh, The idea is that the, the believers will go to meet him and welcome him and escort him back to earth. That, that we'll, we'll actually be welcoming our, our risen saviour back to the earth. And sixthly, we see the results. Because Paul continues in verse 17 by saying, And so, we will always be with the Lord. So, the, the return, the resurrection... The rapture, the reunion and the rendezvous are all to the end that all those who have been redeemed will always be 
with the Lord. This is wonderful, isn't it? This is what it's all about. This is what it's all in aid of. It's so that we can always be with the Lord. His people who are alive at his coming, those who have died in him before his coming, will be with the Lord Jesus Christ for eternity. That's the purpose of Christ's mission. Uh, You remember that he prayed to the Father in John 17 before going to the cross. Uh, In verse 24, he said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, and to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the earth. See, all those that the Father gave to Christ to die for, as well as being with him, will see his glory. What an eternity we have in store. So finally, let's notice Paul's deduction. You remember that the Thessalonians were worried and concerned about their brothers and sisters in Christ who had died. And they were possibly beginning to to question the effectiveness of the gospel and what lay in store for them. And Paul could have simply answered by bluntly saying, well, you don't need to worry. But he actually gave this very detailed answer to them. And in verse 18, he went on to say, therefore. In the light of all this truth, therefore, he drew a deduction from what he'd been saying. He's saying, this is what you should conclude from what I've been telling you. And what was his deduction? Well, he said that what he'd said was good news that answered their question and it should be more than enough to put their minds at rest. Therefore, he said, encourage one another with these words. And notice that he didn't just say, therefore, be encouraged by what I've said. No, he said, therefore, encourage one another. Uh, That their concern for the well-being of their brothers and sisters in Christ was a, a clear indication of their love for one another, wasn't it? And Paul was eager for them to to maintain that love for one another by actively exercising a a ministry of of mutual encouragement. As as believers, we have have a a privilege and a responsibility for encouraging one another. And notice that doesn't just mean by saying things like, don't worry, cheer up, chin up, uh, it's not so bad as it seems. It'll all work out in the end. All the sort of glib cliches that we so easily use, uh, that they, they, they can just be empty platitudes, can't they, and provide no real encouragement at all. But you see, far from uttering such cliches, Paul exhorts, uh, exhorts the Thessalonians and us to encourage one another with these words. What words? What he's been saying. And that culminates with this wonderfully encouraging truth. And so we will always be with the Lord. Real encouragement comes from, it comes from the solid truths of God's word. So may we be eager to, to know the truth and eager to use the truth 
to encourage one another.